Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. On today's episode, we'll first talk to Ricky Thompson, a business reporter for The Advocate who has been covering the fallout from the historic collapse last year of First NBC, a New Orleans-based community bank. Next, we'll talk about the upcoming midterm elections coming up in just two weeks with Stephanie Grace, The Advocate's political columnist. And last but not least, music writer Keith Spira will stop by to tell us about his recent conversation with Cyril Neville in a 13th Ward espresso bar as the youngest of the four Neville brothers turned 70. Joining us today is Ricky Thompson, who covers business for The Advocate. For the last couple of years, Ricky has also been covering the collapse of First NBC Bank and the spectacular fallout from that collapse, including a federal criminal investigation that has started to bear fruit. Ricky, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gordon. Sure. Uh, Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the bank's failure, like how did it happen, when did it happen, and how much money was lost, that sort of thing. So First NBC Bank failed in April of 2017. And at the time, there were issues plaguing it for more than a year leading up to it. Its stock had tumbled almost 90%, but still it caught many people by surprise. Ultimately, the collapse uh, ended up costing the FDIC about a billion dollars to clean up, which made it the costliest failure of an American bank since the height of the financial crisis. Okay, and so when when the when it costs a billion dollars, explain a little more what that means. That doesn't mean that means every all the money that the people had in the bank that was lost amounted to like a billion dollars. They don't actually lose their money. The banks kind of collectively reimburse them or make them whole, right? So the billion dollars comes from premiums and fees that other banks pay to the FDIC, and so. As far as depositors, the FDIC insures depositors up to $250,000. But in this case, First NBC was interesting or unique because roughly 30% of its deposits were over that limit. The bank typically paid the highest for deposits in the area, and so it attracted many large deposits like that. But in this case, the FDIC did provide a coverage for those deposit holders, even above the... Even though they didn't have to. Even though they didn't have to. Gotcha. So what happened... So last week, we had the first conviction stemming from this federal investigation uh, with a guilty plea from Jeffrey Dunlap, a contractor from Slidell. Tell us about what his relationship to the bank was and what he admitted doing in this guilty plea. So uh, Mr. Dunlap, what he ended up, uh, he was charged earlier this year with one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud. And as part of the deal that he worked out with prosecutors, he essentially admitted to filing bogus loan paperwork, allegedly at uh, Ashton Ryan's guidance and with his help. Ashton Ryan, the bank president. The bank president and founder in order to secure a loan that eventually, or a line of credit that eventually topped out at $22 million. And so the problem here, what's interesting about this is that he has a side business deal essentially with Ashton Ryan, and that's sort of at the center of this. So Ashton Ryan, through his side business, owes Mr. Dunlap millions of dollars. And what the feds are saying is that uh, every time... He didn't, rather than paying him this debt, he would extend further credit to him. 
And then he would use explain what he did. He used the accounts receivable to make the loan seem credit worthy. So for more than a decade, Mr. Ryan has been working to develop 161 acre uh, tract of land in Mandeville. And to, it's taken different shapes at different points, but the latest plan is to a high-end business park. Okay. Uh, and so he had hired Mr. Dunlap's firm, uh, Phoenix Civil Contractors, in order to perform some infrastructure work on the site. But rather than pay for the work, uh, what Mr. Dunlap has said now in court filings is that uh, for Mr. Ryan through First NBC would extend a line of credit. So he used bank money essentially instead of his own. Not to not to settle the debt, but to keep Mr. Dunlap's head above water essentially. That's exactly it. He essentially is, or Mr. Ryan is, char- or is uh, alleged to have used the bank's money almost as a kitty to stave off his own obligations. And so what the court filings said last week was that this went on repeatedly for years, that the two had talked about inflating accounts receivable in order to justify extending and enlarging that line of credit until it eventually topped at over uh, $22 million. Because being owed money essentially is a sign that you should be able to pay it back because as soon as I collect this debt, I'll be able to pay off the loan. So, But in this case, the irony is that the person who owes him is the same person who's loaning him the money, essentially. Right. And there's a lot of questions about how that would play out and whether that would flout bank policy. Also, according to First NBC's policy, in terms of accounts receivable, they need to be within, for instance, 90 days due. And these certainly weren't the case with that. Um, And there were other bank policies that the arrangement flouted, but the general one that prosecutors seem to allege it in the court filings last week, they paint a picture that Mr. Ryan benefited personally from these loans, from continuing to extend the loans with the bank's money. I see. So this whole document clearly points pretty directly at Ashton Ryan, as you said, the founder and bank president. It's it's clearer than ever that that's the target of this probe, wouldn't you say? Oh, there's no question. I mean, Ash, uh, Mr. Ryan's not named in the court filing last week. He's referred to as bank president A, just because Justice Department guidelines frown against naming someone who hasn't been charged with a crime up to that point. But the details outline his career and his position at the bank. There's it's no clearly him they're talking about. and It's clearly him they're talking about. He is what they're looking at with this. And it's we know that the grand jury has continued to look at both his actions uh, and the steps he may have taken leading up to the bank's collapse mm-hmm. as part of whether it continues, considers uh, moving ahead with criminal charges. It really is much of the conduct described in the, these court documents that, that in, in Mr. Dunlap's guilty plea, many of them described uh, what appear to be crimes committed by Ashton Ryan. They just didn't name him as Ashton Ryan. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, the challenge here for prosecutors is that making a bad loan, just even if you think it's a good loan at the time, isn't necessarily a crime. They have to prove either negligence or that you personally benefited from doing so. And so ever since the bank had collapsed, much of the criticism has been pointed at Ashton Ryan for... Um, had a huge appetite for risk. Uh, huge appetite for risk would make new loans to, to borrowers so that they could repay old loans, larger loans than other banks would make. Um, and so also the, as part of that, uh, they've also got to look at whether or not the board was asleep at the wheel, mm-hmm. whether they had they were negligent in their fiduciary duty to move forward as well. But so we don't really know whether this probe centers on something sort of simple negligence that is like giving away money that he shouldn't have. Or in this case, we have an example where they seem to be saying Ash and Ryan himself benefited from these risky loans, which is a little bit of a different animal. And and maybe I would say a better story to tell a jury. 
Right. I mean, I think just given the size of the bank's collapse, there's no question. It's not surprising that a grand jury is examining this. And so from the view of prosecutors is they don't necessarily have to untangle the entire bank collapse and pin each action on Mr. Ryan to... Or they don't have to decide each of these was a crime. Right. They could just look at this one example. And if a conspiracy to commit bank fraud carries a potential 30-year sentence, Mr. Ryan's already, you know, he's into his 70s at this point, And that could be, if he's found guilty, something that would be, you know, uncomfortable for him moving forward. Right. So uh, we don't really know at this point whether the investigation is sort of on this this broader uh, this broader question of negligence or whether it's sort of zeroing in on conflicts of interest like this one described. But I guess we'll watch this closely and see how it plays out. And then in the background of this, the FDIC continues to investigate and could move forward with a suit against uh, any of the bank officers or the directors and the, SD, the FDIC rather and the SEC is also conducting its own investigation. So there could be all kinds of civil settlements and whatnot in addition to this criminal case. Absolutely. And others could be charged potentially as part of this grand jury as well. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today, Ricky. I appreciate it. Thanks, Gordon. Joining us now is Stephanie Grace, the Advocate's political columnist. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the midterm elections coming up in two weeks. Uh, Two weeks, right? November 6th. Uh, obviously, national elections um, and maybe the most interesting stuff going on is is na- is nationally. So a lot at stake here. Republicans control both houses of Congress and that could change um, <clears throat> and it could change in any number of ways. Both houses could flip uh, one or one could or, or they could remain both in Republican control. What uh, walk us through the possibilities? Well, I mean, this is just huge for the country and obviously is generating tons of interest. And the question really is, is there going to be any sort of pushback against President Trump or do the, does one party control the presidency, the legislative branch and increasingly the courts, frankly? Right. And um, so there is tremendous inter- interest. There is a lot of energy on the anti-Republican, anti-Trump side. One of the real mysteries is how much energy there is on the pro-Republican, pro-Trump side. You know, the president and some others have have really talked about how the Brett Kavanaugh hearings have energized their voters. Right. I think we, we don't know that. There's conflicting. And, and then does the energy translate into, obviously that was an energizing event for a lot of people, sure. but does it translate into when one side wins and one side loses, how does that translate? And does winning cause you to go to the polls more or does losing cause you exactly. to go to the polls more? Exactly. Does grievance cause right. you to go to the polls? And I think in general, the pattern is in a midterm election when Congress is up, but the presidency is not, the president's party loses. And it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It is the people who are unhappy with how things are going right. are more motivated than to go to, the polls. to go to the polls. Another pattern, though, is that in midterm elections, you have small, lower turnout, which means you get chronic voters and they tend to be Republican, older. Um, you know, there's been a real problem on the Democratic side, which has the greater numbers, frankly, around the country, but in getting younger voters, minority voters right. to show up on these non-presidential years. So there's a big push for that now. Interesting. So what are the prognosticators? You know, I know it's all totally up in the air, right. but I mean, I mean, I've seen a lot of predictions that the Senate will remain in Republican control. It's looking increasingly like that. And again, you know, something really broadly you have to look at is the extent to which the 
system is dictating the results, the voting system. And in this case, in the Senate, it is which Senate seats are up. One thing that's interesting is these senators who are up now were elected six years ago. That was a presidential year. So you ended up with some Democrats in kind of Republican states, and they're now maybe on the defensive. So I'm talking about people like Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, um, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin in West Virginia. So and these states were Trump states, basically. So the feeling is that the voters will want to support the president and perhaps you know, get rid of, you know, install a Republican right. there. There are a couple seats, only a couple where the Democrats could pick up uh, Nevada, Arizona. Uh-huh. It's going to be tough. Um, Florida is kind of a toss up. There's a Democrat there now. There's right. a very close race with the Republican governor. Um, you know, people are kind of looking at how the gubernatorial race will go because there's a kind of an exciting young African-American Democrat. And there's the hope on the Democratic side that he'll get turnout. You know, he will inspire people to go to the vote to go and vote for governor, and then those people That'll might vote the for the Democratic Senate senator who is older and perhaps right. not as... Bill Nelson. Right. Bill Nelson, who's not really as um, charismatic, let's say. Right. <laughs> um, very diplomatic, Stephanie. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, and then in the House, there's more... I've seen more predictions that the Democrats might take back the House. Of course, they need to take a number of seats they to do. do that. They do. They need a big pickup. You know, they have a pretty good chance of getting it. And, you know, there the places to look are the suburban districts. And that's where, you know, areas that kind of have been Republican in the past, but where you have more people shifting to Democrat, more, a lot of, you know, college educated right. women, that's the demographic everybody's watching. That's the one that Trump's not doing as well. With. Exactly. Um, white women, I should say. Uh, also look at Pennsylvania. That's an interesting state because they threw out all the congressional districts. There was a gerrymandered congressional map. And even though it's, you know, pretty much a democratic state there the congressional delegation was tilted towards republicans uh the courts threw that map out and basically said that the legislature kind of artificially constructed these districts to favor republicans so there are a bunch of democratic pickup possibilities in pennsylvania so and then locally or in louisiana we all of our all of our Congress members are up for re-election, but they all are going to coast pretty Correct. easily. Correct. It's it's so much more boring here than any place <laughs> else. Uh, we have six members of Congress, five Republicans and a Democrat. All of them are running for re-election in districts that are pretty much very safe for members of their party. So there are no open seats. There are no big partisan challenges. There's also no Senate race. Right. So, um, you know, in terms of what to expect on election night, it would be a real shocker if any of the incumbents really even had a hard time, right. let alone lost. Right. Um, but the thing to watch is there is one guy who's got a lot riding on this, and that is Steve Scalise. And why is that? And so he's now the majority whip the on the Republican side. Which is he's the number three position. Number three position. Uh, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, is leaving Congress. Somebody is going to be Speaker of the House. Um, depends on a couple things. One, which party controls right. the House. So that's way up in the air. Um, and two, it could be Nancy Pelosi again. But if it is the Republicans, there is one person ahead of Steve Scalise in line, a guy named Kevin McCarthy from California. He kind of tried once before and didn't really have the votes. There is some suspicion among the real conservative Republicans that he might not quite be he doesn't have the conservative bona fides that Scalise has. Correct. Okay. So, you know, officially, this all happens behind closed doors. There's not going to be a public vote. Basically, if Kevin McCarthy counts the votes and he doesn't have them, he will gracefully bow out. Interesting. And Steve Scalise is 
making it clear that he is right there ready to step in. And the two of them are both embracing Donald Trump. They're out around the country raising tons of money for their Republican colleagues because there's nothing to, you know, that kind of makes somebody loyal more than giving them a check when they need them. (laughs) So that's um, that's really going to be the most closely watched story on election night around here, I think. And then beyond that, we've got, you know, we've got a statewide race for secretary of state, and that's kind of the big ticket race on the Louisiana ballot, right? Right. I mean, to the extent people care about that. Which um, is not a very big extent, well, I guess. you know, it, ideally, people wouldn't even know who the Secretary of State is because it's kind of an administrative job. You oversee elections, business records, things like that. In some states, it's interesting. You have some Secretaries of State who are making news because they are running for governor and <laughs> there are some possible shenanigans, alleged shenanigans, Pretty convincing allegations, right. frank, frankly, of you know trying to basically keep certain people, make it more difficult for certain types of people to vote. Like this, what's happening in Georgia. Georgia is the big one. Yeah. Um, so again, we don't want that. We've never had that in the state. We had Tom Shetler, who was a Republican, but someone who really did not do anything like that. Um, we've had pretty good. I think, faith in our elections here in Louisiana, unexpectedly, given what's going on in the rest of the country. I think a lot of people would like to keep it that way. Um, But it's interesting because partisanship really is becoming an issue in this race. There are a couple of Republicans who are running, um, some very conservative ones, Rick Edmonds from Baton Rouge, uh, A.G. Crow from St. Tammany Parish. Julie Stokes is a Republican, but she's kind of a little more of a centrist um, philosophically. She's from Canada. She's a state rep. And then there's a guy named Carl Arduin, who was the number two for Tom Shedler when he had to resign because of the sexual harassment allegations, right. of course, and said he wasn't going to run. And then at the very last minute, he turned around and said, you know what? I am going to run. <laughs> so he's really become kind of the focal point of the campaign for a couple of reasons. One is the people who are already planning races for what they thought was an open seat are pretty mad at him right. and are calling him a turncoat. And the other is there's been some controversy over these new voting machines that his office has purchased. And um, the governor's office has now basically said there are improprieties with the bidding process and has thrown them out. Um, he's actually a former Democrat who is running a very ideologically conservative race. He's invoking Barack Obama, Eric Holder, George Soros in his ads. Hmm. Um, the idea is that somebody probably, one of these Republicans will probably get into a runoff with the Democrat. And the main Democrat is... A woman named Renee Fontenot-Free, who is not well known. She's worked in the Secretary of State's office, Attorney General's office for a long time. Um, You know, she's not running really a Democratic race, but Mm -hmm. she does have a D next to her name, which very likely gets her in the runoff and very likely causes her to lose a runoff against whichever Republican is in with her. Interesting. Of course, that was what was supposed to happen in the governor's race a couple of years ago. So sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, and then we should talk about the perhaps the most interesting race in Louisiana this year is this uh, constitutional amendment number two, which would require that juries in Louisiana return unanimous verdicts like they have to do in every other state other than Oregon. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's going on with that? This has been so interesting. Um, you know, if you ask people a year ago, did they even know that Louisiana had different rules? I think a lot of people would have said no. But it's something that went through the legislature and I think wasn't really given a great chance of passing. But, you know, um, at the same time, The Advocate came out with a series that really talked about how this law um, has 
racist origins and there's it still kind of creates racial disparities in sentencing and that really captured some imaginations what's more interesting that's more on the left but kind of on the right there it's really become a big issue to some people who kind of see it as a you know big government infraction or constitutional violation that you know you sh- the government can lock you up if they can't convince if, 12 people that you're guilty. exactly so you know the Another thing that I think is very interesting is there kind of was this coalition, this left-right coalition behind criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, which was a big issue the year before. So you have people, you know, way on the left and way on the right really coming together. They might have different reasons for um, supporting reduced sentences, things like that. You know, on the Republican side, it might be cost. On the on the Democratic side, it might be social justice. But, you know, but there's also a lot of overlap. You right. can believe we spent too much in prisons and... More people, you know, it being in prison ruins too many lives of people convicted of nonviolent offenses. They're not right. mutually exclusive. And I feel like this kind of infrastructure, this political infrastructure existed. So when this issue came up, people kind of knew what to do. And, right. A lot of the same people kind of rallied around this. Right. That rallied and, around and that. you know, there's kind of muscle memory. Like, yeah. oh, this is one of those issues where we have we agreement. Yeah. And again, can... <laughs> How great is that? How often does this happen? Hardly ever. Right. It would be really nice if we could kind of take this model and figure out where else to apply it, right? <laughs> to the budget, maybe. Ex- well, yeah. Dream on. All right. Well, um, that's about all the time we have. So thanks for joining us, Steph. Okay, thanks. Don't forget to vote. All right. I'm joined now by Keith Spira, the longtime New Orleans music writer. Um, Keith's been with The Advocate now for three years. Is yep. it? All right. Yeah. Um, Keith, you sat down, first of all, thanks for joining me. Um, you sat down recently with Cyril Neville, uh, in his old neighborhood in the, uh, what he would call the 13th ward. Many people would just call uptown New Orleans. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about where'd you meet him, first of all? Well, Cyril and I got together at the Espresso Cherry, uh, or the Cherry Espresso Bar on the corner of Laurel and Upper Line, which back in the day, when Neville was a young man, when Cyril was a young man, it was the Uptown Community Center, where they would have Mardi Gras sewing lessons and after-school uh, tutoring sessions for kids. Like and, a Nord facility. Kind yeah, of, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and it was, you know, very much a community hub, and uh, and there were musical instruments in a room upstairs, so the Neville brothers would jam with kids and all that. Uh, very different now. Cyril uh, very much looked like a fish out of water there the other day <laughs> when we met. Uh, you know, he was older probably by 50 years than just about everybody else in the room. <laughs> Um, you know, and he, uh, yeah, he's seen a lot of changes to the neighborhood. You know, he doesn't live there anymore. He lives in Slidell. He grew up over on Valen Street, famously, right? Correct. And the Neville Brothers sang about Valen Street uh, and about the 13th Ward and a lot of their songs. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's changed a lot. You know, as he pointed out, uh, when he was growing up, he never expected to see palm trees on Valen Street. But now there are landscaped palm trees and some of the... Uh, <laughs> Redone houses around there, and it's a, it's a very different neighborhood. Probably never expected to see million-dollar homes on Valen Street either. Probably never expected to see that. Probably never expected to see uh, an espresso bar in, uh, <laughs> in uh, the neighborhood. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, so a lot of changes. And uh, the parks changed a lot, too. I think he mentioned that, too. Well, <laughs> yes, he what, did. what did he tell you? Uh, what? He, he, he basically said, you know, yeah, back in the, you know, that park, uh, Wisner, playground there on Laurel Street, you know, used to be the site of the Uptown uh, Street Festival. And now it's where uh, soccer moms take their dogs to crap. So, <laughs> yes. 
There's a dog run. There's an actually a designated dog there run. There is. I know it well. Yeah, yes. I live in the neighborhood. Yes, yes. So uh, so he's kind of the, of the original Neville brothers. Uh, he's kind of the one who's still grounded in New Orleans and still active, right? Correct. He's the last one. Uh, you know, Charles, saxophonist and Neville brothers, of course, died of cancer in April of this year. Aaron has lived for several years in New York, uh, and he spends a lot of his time on a farm in upstate New York where he and his, and his second wife uh, run his farm up there. Uh, and then Art, who is 80, he's the oldest of the brothers, uh, you know, was kind of knocked back by a bunch of, of health setbacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's really been out of commission for over a year now that he hasn't really performed. Yeah. So, uh, so Cyril is the only brother of the Neville brother generation that is still active. active right. in New and he is 70 now. Just celebrated his 70th birthday. Exactly. He planned a big uh, 70th birthday bash at the Civic Theater. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's been it's a bit of a milestone for him. Hasn't been a little reflective and looking back at everything. Uh, but he's still breaking new ground. You know, he's still out there representing for New Orleans. You know, he used to tour with the Neville Brothers, and they would play theaters and amphitheaters. And this summer, he was a special guest with Trombone Shorty as Trombone Shorty headlined a bunch of those theaters and amphitheaters. Kind of the, of the next generation of... Exactly. Of another exactly. big mu- From another big musical family representing New Orleans with the same kind of similar genres of music around the, around the country. Absolutely. You know, I mean, when Troy Andrews, Trumbull Shorty, was a kid, he used to sit in with the Neville Brothers. You know, Neville Brothers would have him out as a special guest. And now the roles are reversed. And, you know, Cyril is brought out as a sort of elder statesman guest <laughs> to sing a couple of old meter songs with Shorty's uh-huh. band to give it some of that old school New Orleans cred. Uh-huh. Know, so. The torch is being passed. I liked, he, he said something to you about, uh, what did he say that uh, Trumbo and Shorty was holding up his hand like he was Joe like Lewis. Like he was Joe Lewis, <laughs> exactly. So Cyril gets out there and he does, uh, he was doing No More Okie Doke and uh, Fire on the Bayou with Orleans Avenue. And yeah, and Troy treated him like New Orleans royalty. You know, so... <laughs> Now, is he primarily, he's primarily a percussionist or a... By trade, but, you know, Aaron always used to say that Cyril was the best singer in the Neville Brothers. You know, Cyril has got this real sort of gritty, soulful voice, mm-hmm. which was a nice counterpoint to Aaron's more sort of angelic falsetto. Uh-huh. So, uh, so he's really been focusing a lot lately on his vocals. You know, with the Neville Brothers, he used to use this huge percussion rig that had all these congas and chimes and all this kind of stuff and cowbells and now he's basically up there just with the tambourine uh, and his voice you know a small combo and he's found out that people really like to hear his voice without all the other stuff around it and he's doing a weekly gig now at in october every friday night in october he's doing a friday night show at the jazz playhouse in the royal sonesta of course formerly Irvin mayfield's jazz playhouse in the royal sonesta Mm -hmm. But uh, the Royal Sinesta divested itself of that association uh, with Irvin's recent troubles. That may be the topic of a future podcast. <laughs> um, plenty of plenty of risk for that particular bill. Yeah. So uh, what was and and uh, so Cyril is getting ready to play a big show when you sat down with him. Yeah, it was going to be big. Uh, you know, his big 70th birthday celebration, uh, and it's kind of indicative of his. The, the status he has in the, in the local scene, but all the people that are coming out for him. It was, you know, the guest list included uh, Irma Thomas and Deacon John and members of Galactic and John Butte, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, he really is plugged into the local music community and really more so, I'd say, than even a lot of the other brothers were. You know I mean? Yeah. Aaron kind of was doing his own thing for a long time. Charles lived in Massachusetts since the 90s, so he would be down here to play gigs, but right. wasn't out and about as much. You know, and Art was working with the meters or the funky meters or some of those derivations, so it was out on the road with that. But, you know, Cyril's been the 
the kind of really ground grounded, level yeah. guy in yeah. New Orleans for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's got all this, and he was the most kind of socially aware, you know, I mean, back in his younger days, he would get into a lot of conflicts with like police and such, uh, you know, back in his younger, wilder days, uh, <laughs> you know, when drugs and violence were kind of part of the whole Neville's thing. Um, and he's mellowed out a lot, obviously, since then, but is still very in tune with issues of social justice and, uh, you know, and race and making sure that uh, kids coming up understand their place in the world and, and kind of how to deal with it. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating story, and uh, you should check it out if you haven't read it. And also uh, terrific photos by Chris Granger to accompany it. Yeah. Chris and I reunited, man. I hadn't done a project with Chris Granger in, uh, <laughs> since I left another publication here in town where he was until recently employed. So uh, it's great to be working with Chris. I mean, one of the best photojournalists in town, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining me today, Keith. Appreciate it. Well, you made me do it, Gordon, so here I am. <laughs> no, my pleasure. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week. <laughs>